You're listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Robert Green on Sunday, November 29, 2020 at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church, visit us online at redemptionhill.com. A little bit different this morning, expecting somebody to come up and, and read and prepare. Well, I'm going to do that for us this morning as we go through God's Word together this morning. We're going to take a a short break from our first Samuel series uh, for the next four weeks, maybe the next four to five weeks, uh, a season in the life of the church that is often referred to as the Advent season. Uh, Some of you might have actually grown up celebrating Advent. Uh, Advent might have been part of your life. Maybe if you grew up in the church, Advent was a part of your life. Uh, And maybe if it was, you might have had an Advent calendar in your house that if you're my age, at least, most likely it was a piece of cardboard that had 24 doors in it that you would open up one per day leading up to December 25th, but behind each door is a piece of chocolate. Um, and, And most likely that Advent calendar was related to a particular scripture reading, but not always. In fact, I've been given two Advent calendars this year already by my family, made by a coffee company, which has a different coffee behind each door of each day of the month. has nothing to do with Jesus or the gospel at all. Just my addiction to coffee. If two family members sent me the exact same thing they thought I would enjoy, probably says more about me than than Advent. But Advent uh, is a season in the life of the church historically that is often talked about. Um, It's often celebrated, but rarely is it really understood. Um, The Advent season, it stands in a very rich tradition of of gospel calendaring. You know, as you go through the Old Testament, you see over and over again that God had instituted a series of festivals, a series of feasts that he intended for his people to celebrate every single year. And they were scheduled throughout the year, and they formed the basis of the calendar for the life of God's people. And it was through those feasts that they not only ordered their year, but every single time God was calling their minds and their hearts back to something true about him, something true about his grace. In fact, these festivals and these feasts would preach to God's people throughout the year. In fact, there was something you might have heard of if you read the Old Testament called the Passover feast. It was the feast of unleavened bread. You can find that in the Old Testament. But it was a yearly reminder of God's power, God's sovereignty, God's love and grace towards his people when he rescued them out of slavery in Egypt. Right behind that, in 50 days after Passover, they would celebrate the feast of weeks. You might know it as the feast of Pentecost. And it was there that God's people would be reminded that God led them out of slavery to Sinai, where he gave them a covenant of holiness, where he called them to himself out of where they had been. He declared his character and his nature to them. And then throughout the year, they would go on again in a series of feasts, like the Feast of Tabernacles, where they would leave their homes. They would go outside their homes, and they would gather branches and and sticks, and they would build these little shelters outside of their homes where they would live for an entire week. And all week, they would have dinners and meals and parties with their neighbors and with their friends, and they would be sleep overnight in those shelters that they built, those, those booths, and they would look back on their home and be reminded that God cared for them in their wanderings in the wilderness, that he's provided for them a place, and he will one day provide for his people an eternal feast and an eternal home. Every year, their calendar was ordered around a whole series of festivals and feasts that would preach God's goodness and his character to their hearts, not just order their lives, but preach to their hearts. And so as the church would be established in the New Testament and begin to grow and begin to spread before the the age of mass literacy, the church actually used what's called the church calendar to do something very similar. It would order the life of the church around a series of seasons in a similar way that God ordered the life of his people in the Old Testament around a series of feasts. And each of these seasons marked a period of time, yes, on the calendar, but each one preached something different to the lives and the hearts of God's people. In fact, Christmas is actually a season. In the history of the church calendar, it's not a day, it's a season. That's where the 12 days of Christmas actually comes from. It was 12 days to celebrate that the king has come, 
to remember and to celebrate the joy of the coming king. And when those 12 days were over, it would roll into a season the church historically is called the season of Epiphany. It was a season where the church would be focused on the calling of God's people to see the good news of this king spread from nation to nation, from neighborhood to neighborhood. It was about the kingdom of God advancing. And the season of Epiphany, though, would, would give way in a matter of weeks to a season you might be more familiar with. It was a season called Lent. Lent is a 40-day season of preparation in the hearts of God's people, being reminded of how we have responded to this king who has come and established his kingdom on earth. It's 40 days marked by a, a season of, of preparation and repentance recognizing our continued need for the grace of God, our need for His coming. It's a, it's a time to prepare ourselves for what happens at the end of the Lent season, which is Easter. Lent begins to wrap those 40 days up on what you might know, if you've been here with us for a while, on Good Friday, where we reflect on the necessity of the cross, the night the King was crucified. So that three days later on Easter Sunday, we're ready to hear the good news, the gospel. And then 50 days later, corresponding to the Old Testament festival of weeks, we celebrate Pentecost. Because 50 days later, after Jesus rose from the tomb in victory over Satan, sin, and death, God sent his Holy Spirit upon his people, establishing the church and empowering them for the very calling of seeing the gospel go to the nations that he's called them to do. So every year, the historic church calendar is kind of ordered around a series of seasons, much like the early Israelite calendar was ordered around a season of festivals, and each one of them preaches something of God's nature, of His character, of His grace to, the, to His people. It was woven into the fabric of their lives, and as Pentecost would end, we would go into what was known as ordinary time, but we would go into what is known as ordinary time with a sense of extraordinary meaning and purpose and empowering. But all of this starts in the church, in the church calendar, with the season of Advent. Now, Advent, just to be really clear and really honest, let me turn my, my clock on so that I don't keep you too long. Advent is a, a later addition to the history of the church calendar. It's not as old as some of those other seasons. And I'll be really honest, the exact origins of Advent as a season are pretty disputed. That's just fact. You're going to find different historians say it started in different ways, but the majority of church historians say it started this way. I'll give you a quick background so you can kind of know what's happening here. They say it goes back to a Roman officer's son named Martin in the fourth century. He was from Hungary. And here's his story. Martin was an officer in the Roman army. He wore the Roman military garb with the giant red crimson Roman cloak of an officer. And the story goes that one day he was riding on his routes and he came across a beggar. Now, a beggar in those days was very different than a beggar in many of our days. There were no signs saying, you know, I'm hungry and I'll work. These were the most destitute people set apart outside of a city area into a place of squalor. And one day Martin came across one of these beggars, the story goes, and he saw him in his need. And Martin cut a piece of his Roman cloak, that red cloak an officer would wear. He cut a whole bottom portion off, and he gave it to this man. And then that night, when Martin went to sleep, history says that he had a dream. And in that dream, a man asked him, Martin, do you know who I am? And Martin says, at least in his journals, that he responded in his dream, yes, you are Jesus of Nazareth, the one they call the Christ. The next day, at least as the story goes, Martin went to report for work, and he told his commanding officer that he was no longer able to serve under the Roman emperor, that he now served a new king, and he was stepping down from his position as an officer in the Roman army. And for his confession, Martin was thrown into prison for cowardice and treason. He spent a number of years there in a Roman prison. When he was released... Martin became a monk. Martin preferred seclusion and study and prayer. From living in people, he preferred to be away. But on occasion, the story goes, Martin would go into the town where he would teach, where he would preach, where he would help those who were destitute and poor, and people loved him. 
he became very, very popular. In fact, many times they tried to make him bishop. When the bishop of the area died, they tried and they tried and they tried to convince him to become bishop, but he didn't want to do it. He wanted to keep the way of living that he had established after he was released from prison. And you can go back and you can read the story, but one day he was tricked into becoming bishop. That's a fun story. So he became bishop. And when he was bishop, here's the deal. Martin recognized that his people, those that he was given charge over in his area, their hearts weren't sufficiently prepared for the Christmas season. Now, it's another sermon for us, and they didn't live in nearly as consumer-oriented a society as we do. But he recognized as a faithful shepherd that their hearts were not ready to celebrate the joy of the coming king. So, Martin instituted what he called, or he had a different name for it, but it, it was kind of like a Christmas Lent. It was 40 days of preparation for the Christmas season. During those 40 days when Martin was bishop, they would fast every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, three days a week. It was 40 days to prepare your heart to respond to the joy of King Jesus having, coming, having come. It was a season marked by waiting, by anticipation, by longing. The world is still not yet what God intends for it to be. Just as God's people Israel waited and longed for God to send his promised Messiah, we too on this side of the cross wait and long for the return of the king to fully and finally consummate all that he became, all that he began in his first coming. So over the years, as the church celebrated the Advent season as a time of preparation for the Christmas season, it shifted and it's adjusted. It's no longer 40 days of preparation, three days a week of fasting. It's now the four Sundays before Christmas. And historically, the church takes those Sundays and and considers particular themes of waiting, like hope and peace and love and joy. It's not 40 days of fasting anymore, but it's still a season of anticipation. It's still a season marked by longing. The world is not yet what it will be. And if 2020 has reminded us of anything, there's still a waiting that you and I are in the midst of. There's still a longing and an anticipation for the day in which God will do, fulfill, and consummate all that he has begun and all that he has promised. In fact, recently I I heard a, a celebrity on TV called 2020 a dumpster fire. They were talking about how every turn in their life, there was just another trial. Everything was hard. Everything was difficult. Everything was hardship. If you realize this, Peter, he prepared us for this very thing. Peter told the church in 1 Peter 4, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Peter's telling us that fiery trials, they're they're normal. Hardship is normal in a fallen world. This is what comes with that time between the arrival of the king the first time and the arrival of the king the second time, when all that he has promised is going to come to pass. It's normal. But if we're honest, and we're going to consider this together in our time this morning, we've all lived a fairly comfortable life for a while. And so I think with 2020, what we found is that we were unprepared for its difficulty. If anything, 2020 has reminded each of us in our own ways that we're not really as in as much control of things as we thought we were. Some of us have a lot of control over how our individual lives operate. And we've been reminded in various ways that we don't have quite as much power quite as much control as you may have thought. A lot of our plans and a lot of our expectations, a lot of our schedules and a lot of the things that we had intended upon were interrupted. And so as we considered these next few weeks, instead of going through 1 Samuel, and that's where we were when I came into the office on Monday, instead of continuing on where we were, we realized that 2020 has has kind of teed us up for a little bit of Advent consideration. The hardship and the difficulty of the year 
the more we talk about it, and we'll see it in the next few weeks, it's, it's really the setting where the Advent virtues are formed and where the Advent virtues are most cherished. You see, hope is needed when despair runs wild. Joy is needed when sorrow threatens. Peace is what is needed and desired when life is full of turmoil and love. Love as we understand it in God's word is what we desire and need when life seems to be full of hate and even self-centeredness. All of these things are often very clear in our life in the midst of hardship and difficulty. Despair, sorrow, turmoil, hate, self-centeredness. Sounds a lot like 2020 to me. So, that all being said, this morning, we're going to spend the rest of our time considering hope. We're going to consider biblical Christian hope. But why start there? Why is that the place we begin? Well, first off, Christians are intended by God to be a particularly hopeful people. In fact, Peter wrote to the church in Asia Minor, and he said in 1 Peter chapter 3 that you and I are to always, which means in the dumpster fire years and in the really good and plentiful years, we are to always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks us to give a reason for the hope that is in us. By implication, Peter is saying, you and I, as followers of Jesus, are intended to be a hopeful people. Our hope is meant to be something that people in the midst of our lives, even difficult times like we're in right now, people around us are meant to see and ask us about when they observe what's flowing out of our lives. They're to see something unique about the way we speak and about the way we live and the decisions that we make. And they're meant to ask us, what's the hope that you have that enables you to live like this in the midst of such a fiery dumpster fire of a year? We're meant to be a hopeful people. But what people observe in our lives, the Bible tells us very clearly actually springs out of and grows out of the soil of biblical hope. Listen to this. I'm just going to give you a flyover, so to speak, of what the Bible says about these things this morning, then we're going to dive in a little bit to something else. But the Advent virtues, like joy, they spring out of hope. That's why Paul tells the church in Romans, Romans 12, to rejoice in hope. Rejoicing is just the active expression of joy. Our active expression of joy grows out of the soil of hope. Rejoice in hope. What about love? The advent virtue of love. Well, he tells the church in Colossae, in Colossians 1, I've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love for which you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. So because of the hope, that your heart is gripping tightly to, I've heard of your love for all the saints because your love for all the saints, even while they're going through a dumpster fire in their own life, is being seen because of the hope that's in your heart. So even the love that's meant to mark us is something that grows out of the soil of hope. But then the Bible actually gives us very specifically a couple other Advent virtues. They didn't make the list historically. Normally it's hope and peace and joy and love. But if you read the Bible, you'll find that there are other virtues that spring out of hope very directly as well. In fact, one of the first ones you'll come across is boldness. 2 Corinthians 3.12 says, Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Man, if there's anything that God's people need right now in the midst of the world that we live in, I think boldness would be one of those things. But boldness, like joy and like love, springs out of hope. But not only that, I'll give you one more. Another maybe new Advent virtue, maybe we can just institute them in our, in our ongoing years, right? Might be endurance. Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians 1.3. He says, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love, 
and endurance of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So the enduring confidence in Jesus our King, His promises and His character springs and grows in the soil of hope. Love, joy, boldness, endurance, all spring out of hope. But there's another reason we're going to start this week with hope. Again, if we look back over the year, and and we don't consider the world around us, we just consider our own hearts, our own lives. The rise of despair and sorrow and turmoil, selfishness, timidity, even a fragility in the lives of the church, I, I think it exposes that we might be a little bit hope deficient. If hope is what is to give rise in the midst of fiery trials to joy, peace, love, boldness, and endurance, and yet we find so much despair and sorrow, fragility and timidity, hatred, self-centeredness in the lives of the church, then maybe we're just a bit hope deficient. Mark Jones wrote a great book called Faith, Hope, and Love, and it's kind of a catechism on the three virtues, but He said this about hope. He said, I'm persuaded that Christians, especially in the Western world, do not focus on our biblical hope as much as we should, in part because we live fairly comfortable lives. Hope is present in our thinking, but it doesn't occupy our hearts, our souls, and our minds as it should. Christian hope rises in glory where hardship exists on the earth. At the very least, then, we should be aware of the doctrine of hope and should seek to cultivate a more hopeful expectation of that which God promises us in His Word. So 2020 has exposed that maybe we're living a bit ignorant of hope. I won't say deficient of hope, because as we look at the source of real biblical hope, it's always there. But we've just been a bit ignorant of it. It's been a bit easy for a while, and 2020 has caught us off guard. And so for the rest of our time this morning, here's what we're going to do. We're just going to do a fast kind of flyover. If I turn my clock on again, I turn the screen off so I can't see. Flyover of what the Bible says about biblical hope, about Christian hope, about real hope. And then we're going to dive into a case study in the Bible of a guy who's had a year about like ours and see what we can learn about living in this hope. Sound fair? I'm going to give you a lot of verses. They're not going to come up on the screen. With the holidays and travel, we just didn't have time to get all that straight. So you can write them down. I'll tell you where they come from as I read them to you. Write them down, but they're not going to come up. All right? Sound fair? What is biblical or Christian hope? I mean, the question in itself indicates that there might be a difference between it and something else, right? Let's best understand first what real hope is by looking at what it's not. Normally, when you and I talk about hope, when we express something of hope, we're talking about it with a level of uncertainty. So if I were to say, I hope that in 2021, we're able to all gather together again like we used to, what I'm expressing is a very real desire that I want to see come to pass, but I'm not very certain that it's actually going to happen. There's a high degree of uncertainty there. And therefore, I just hope that it might happen. When we tend to talk about hope and think about hope, we do it with a a degree of uncertainty. But is that biblical hope? See, when you and I think about hope like this and think about it with a degree of uncertainty, you need to realize that you and I are making our hope dependent on our circumstances. You see, when our hope is tied to the way our life works out, we can at least guarantee each other one thing, is that at some point we're all going to be disappointed. When our hope is tied in any way to the circumstances of our life working out in a particular way, you can guarantee at some point you're going to be disappointed. If this year hasn't taught you already, life rarely works out the way you plan. When we speak of hope and think of hope in the way we're typically accustomed to doing it, a hope that 
is tied to and built on circumstance that we're uncertain about in the days to come. When we normally speak about hope, I want you to see it like this. Hope in the way we think about it is like a house of cards. And at best, all we're doing is hoping that somebody doesn't come by and bump the table and knock them all down. That's what hope is in the way that you and I tend to think about it. But biblical hope or Christian hope, real hope, is altogether different. You see, when Peter tells the church to set their hope fully on the grace that will be brought to them at the revelation of Christ Jesus, it's not wishful thinking. There isn't a measure of uncertainty in Peter's mind. It's not, well, if it is or if it doesn't happen. I don't know if it's going to happen, if Jesus is going to return. I certainly do hope so. That's not what Peter is saying. Peter is saying the same thing the writer of Hebrews said in Hebrews 6 verse 11. You and I as Christians are to have a full assurance of hope. Christian hope has a full assurance about it. It has a confidence and expectancy about it. Why? Because biblical hope is not tied to circumstances. It's tied to a person. A person whom Paul says in Romans chapter 15 is the God of hope. The one who never changes. Who loves us with an eternal love. who Who promises to work even through hurtful and incomprehensible situations for our good. Who has promised and who has reserved a new home with him as his child in heaven forever. See, biblical hope is the confident expectation that what God has promised will indeed come to pass because of who he is. That's what biblical hope is. There's no uncertainty to it at all. And what evidence does the Bible give us for having this hope? Well, Paul reminds the church in Thessalonica in 2 Thessalonians 2 that God, the God of hope, is a God of grace and that he has loved us through his son and given us a good hope through grace. So the confident expectation we have, our hope being tethered to and tied to God, comes and is born out of a confidence in his grace. It's a good hope that he gives us through grace which is why Paul tells the church in Colossae to not shift from the hope of the gospel. The grace of God and the good news of Jesus crucified for our sins and raised from the dead are the very reasons why sinners like you and I can hope in God and have a confident expectation that the future, the promises that he has made, are going to turn out because of who he is. And as you and I find ourselves waiting in an Advent season, much like we are in for his promised return, he reminds us to sustain our hope and feed our hope through his word. Paul told the church in Rome in Romans 15, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that by steadfastness and by the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have So this confident expectation that you and I are to have, which the Bible will speak of as real hope, Christian hope, is a hope that is sustained and nourished and feeds on the revelation of who God is and the promises that he has made as he has given it to us and revealed to us in his word. This is where it comes from and how it's sustained. And what is it his word tells us that you and I can have a confident expectation of? Let me just give you a few very clear things. Just Again, this is a flyover. We could do a week on every single thing that I'm saying. We are to have a confident expectation that our king is going to return. And when he returns, everything changes. Titus chapter 2, verse 13. Paul speaks of the church waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. you and I, in the midst of our waiting, we can look back with gratitude on the grace and kindness of God in sending his son, the very thing we celebrate in the coming of the king in the Christmas season, for his 
sacrificial death in our place for our sin. His resurrection from the grave, defeating Satan's sin and death. We can look back with gratitude even in this season for God's grace and look forward with hope for the fullness of the glory when he returns. We can have a confident expectation that he's going to come back. And when he comes back, we can have a confident expectation that we are going to have redeemed resurrection bodies. That's very real. Romans 8.23, Paul says, We ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So even right now in the waiting and the longing, it's, it's right to not want to hurt. But we have the confident expectation that by the grace of God, we are going to have eternally healthy bodies. Even more so, if you go back and read Romans chapter 8, it's a fullness that extends even to creation itself. Creation itself is groaning for that day when sin and all of its destructive power at work, even in God's created order, is going to be made right. But not just that, with that full expectation of Jesus' return, you and I can have an expectation of the completion, the fullness, the consummation of our righteousness. Galatians 5, Paul said, through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Not just eternally healthy bodies, but eternally healthy souls. And so now we wait and we groan and we realize that when you and I fight with sin, that's not an indication that we're lost. It's an indication that we're still waiting. And a day is going to come when the fullness of his redeeming work is going to come to fruition and we are going to be made like him and not just free from the power of sin and the, but free from the presence of sin itself. Not just that, we eagerly anticipate and expect to share in God's glory. Romans 5, 2, Paul said, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. In Romans 8, he said, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us. So one writer said, no matter how much you suffer in this life, the joy of the glory of God will be so great as to make you feel as though your years and decades of suffering were as nothing. We also hope, have the confident expectation of eternal life. Titus 1-2, Paul says, It is in hope of eternal life, which God who never lies has promised to us before the ages began. That's a lot. I'm, that's just five. There's more. We could spend a week on each of them, but I just wanted you to feel, in a sense, the testimony of the Bible, kind of like a waterfall washing over you. The confident expectation that you and I are to have, the hope that is ours, that's tethered not to the circumstances around us, but to the God of grace and the gospel, and the clear expectations that he's given us in the direction of our hope, and the way in which, even in the midst of these fiery trials, we can sustain it. Because what I want to do in the rest of our time is I want to not just kind of do this overview of hope and this kind of systematic way of looking at hope throughout the Bible, as helpful as all that is, I want to jump into a case study of someone who, who's gone through a year like ours. So if you've got your Bibles, open up to Psalm 77. You're not going to find the word hope in Psalm 77, and that's okay. What you're going to see is hope fought for and hope clung to in a very real situation. You know, as you've already seen, the Bible is full of declarations about God being the God of hope, but let's be very honest, some days it doesn't feel that way. Despair and sorrow, even as we've seen in 1 Samuel, David going through disloyalty from those around him, heartache and selfishness and all of their effects, these are the real world settings where we need hope, where we need the fruit of hope, joy and peace and love and boldness and endurance. And so you and I have to fight for this real hope to be alive in our hearts. And that's what we see in Psalm 77. And so it starts this way, to, to the choir master, a psalm of Asaph. And what that tells us straight away is that this is a song that is meant to be sung by God's people when they gather together for worship corporately like this. 
These songs were, were written to awaken and express and shape the emotional life of God's people. Right? God made us with emotions, not just thoughts. And our emotions are massively important. And the churches always love the Psalms because the Psalms, they, they give voice to the reality of life in a fallen world. I looked back over some of the Psalms we've taught here before, and I, I remember using this illustration in one of the other Psalms that we've taught on, but there are no plastic people in the Psalms, right? They're real people with real experiences and real emotions, and so much of, of the modern church culture has tried to tell us that when, when we come together for moments like this, that our time is meant to be more like a, like a high school pep rally. And that's not the testimony of the Psalms. God isn't honored by plastic people and, and plastic worship. It's a real world and a real person going through real things and a real expression of life in the midst of it. And as we jump into the psalm, you'll see that Asaph, he, he's going to start off re recounting his own dumpster fire of a year. Look at verse 1. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. I'm crying aloud. No silent praying. He's just out there crying, letting it fly. And he's going to give us an insight into the conflict in his soul. He's going to let us in. In the day of my trouble, verse 2, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. Has 2020 got you there yet? Have you ever been in a circumstance before where you feel like your soul can't even be comforted? He says, when I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. Literally, it says, my spirit waxeth faint. I love that but it's not good. The thought of God is actually troubling him. And it says, Selah. Stop and think about it. Have you ever felt anything like this before? Verse 4, he says, You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled, I cannot speak. So he's not able to sleep, right? Insomnia. He's so troubled, he can't even rest, and he feels speechless. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. And here's what the results of his search were. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? So he's feeling like God has spurned him and rejected him. Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? God doesn't love me. Maybe he's not faithful are his promises at an end? Is he not going to keep his word? Verse 9, has God forgotten to be gracious? He's feeling like God isn't gracious and merciful. Has his anger shut up his compassion? Whew. He's actually feeling like God is being spiteful. He's questioning it. Has his anger shut up his compassion? I don't feel like he's taking care of me. I mean, he's questioning God's very self-disclosure disclosure of himself. Exodus 34, right? The Lord passed before Moses and said, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And then Asaph says, think about it again. Selah. Have you felt like Asaph? This is honest stuff what's so beautiful about the Bible. You just have to pick it up and read it. Despair seems to have set in. The absence of hope, confident expectation in God, his character and his word. He's struggling with a hopelessness and a sense of distance from God. Again, that's not abnormal in a fallen and broken world but he's feeling in his heart that God is not acting favorably towards him, that his loving kindness has ceased, that his promises aren't reliable, his compassion has been rescinded, that he's fickle and he's changing. And Asaph is here in emotional distress. Friends, emotional distress is like a, a dashboard light on your car. When you see it, 
it's indicating there's something else going on under the surface, and we've got to deal with it. You've got to respond. This is where Asaph is. Where is his hope going to come from? Is his hope going to be tethered to the circumstances that he's in changing? We have no indication in the entire psalm that any circumstance he's in that brought him to this place ever changes. If that is where his hope is going to come from, it's a house of cards and people are just knocking it down. Where is it going to come from? When he's feeling this way, he gets two options. He can throw himself a pity party or he can fight for hope. Look at verse 10. Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. Look at this. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all of your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You're the God who works wonders. You've made known your might among the peoples. Your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. Selah. Think about it. Then I said, who is he talking to? He's talking to himself. Then I said, I will remember, I will ponder, I will meditate. Friends, the hopeful Christian life is a life that requires intention and effort and energy and resolve. The hopeful Christian life, especially in dumpster fires like 2020, doesn't happen as a result of drifting. It's not something that just happens to you like the weather Our hope is certain. It is rooted not in our circumstances, but in God. And you and I have to lay a hold of it. Sometimes we've got to fight for that reality in our hearts. This is what we mean when we talk about cultivating the soul. It's the opposite of living a life of passive resignation. So what's Asaph going to remember, ponder, and meditate on? He's going to remember and ponder and meditate on God and His character and His grace, the sure foundation of real hope. And where is He going to find it? He's going to find it in God's self-disclosure that He's given His people. He's going to find it in God's Word. And so let's just look real quick at what He finds when He decides, I'm going to remember this. I'm going to ponder this. I'm going to meditate on it. What is it he does? He remembers God's way. That he's holy. Oh God, your way is holy. He remembers the holiness of God. What God is great like our God. He determines himself to ponder the greatness of God. And when he does, he's struck by the power of this holy and great God. You're the one, verse 14, who works wonders. You've made known your might among the peoples. Verse 16, when the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. Verse 18, the crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. And the earth trembled and shook. When he set himself to remember and ponder and meditate, he set his heart on the wisdom of God. Verse 19, your way was through the sea. Your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. And then verse 20, his heart was captivated as he remembered and pondered and meditated on the tenderness of God. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Let me ask you this. Where 
is God's power and wisdom, greatness and tenderness most visible? Verse 15, for Asaph, it was when God, with his arm, redeemed his people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. Asaph said, I am going to remember and ponder and meditate on the Lord's salvation. Asaph preached the gospel to himself. God's rescue and redemption and powerful care and tenderness towards his people. Asaph intentionally thought on God until his heart was overwhelmed by him. And this is what kindled the confident expectation in his heart that God is keeping his word, that he is for me, he is not against me. This is where hope, real biblical hope, the confident expectation that is to be ours because it's tethered to God and not our circumstances is sustained, is fed, is kindled. It's in how God has revealed himself, who he has revealed himself to be through his word. Friends, our hearts work the same way Asaph's does. Remembering and pondering and meditating on God and the gospel is what cultivates real hope in us. See, just as he set his heart on the fact to remember and meditate on God defeating Israel's enemies and rescuing them from slavery, bringing them to himself into a new land that he has promised, you and I are to set our hearts and minds on the same God who has defeated our enemies of Satan, sin, and death through his son. His son who left the glory of heaven and came to this earth to live the life that we were created to live and, and then willingly, in our place, died the death that we deserve to die for our sin. The one we celebrate the birth of in the Christmas season, the king, who though never sinned, willingly sacrificed himself on the cross where God would exhaust his holy and just wrath for our sin on his son who would suffer the death that we deserved who would die who would be buried but three days later would be raised from the dead why? so that in the wisdom and the power and the tenderness and the glory and the greatness and the holiness and the justice of God, anyone who places their faith in the person and work of Jesus is rescued from the slavery of sin. Is adopted by God as a son and a daughter. And as Peter says in 1 Peter 1.3, is born again to a living hope. The confident expectation of eternal life, righteousness, redeemed bodies, sharing in the glory of God at the day of his promised return, the thing for which we still wait. But we wait with a hope that is alive. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who by his great mercy caused us to be born again to a living hope. While we wait, and we remember, and we ponder, and we meditate, we pray. We pray just like Paul prayed, that the God of hope would fill all of us with all joy and all peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you and I may abound in Friends, God's self-disclosure shows us that He is the ground of our hope. He is the object of our hope. He is the author of our hope. And He, in His Spirit, is the sustainer of our hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of His Spirit, you may abound in hope. Friends, we hope in the promises of God in Christ by the power of His Spirit. That, my friends, is a certain hope. That is the hope that is ours today. That is the hope that gives rise to the joy and to the peace 
and to the love that is to cause those around us in the midst of years like this to ask us for a reason why we can live this way. It's because of this hope. So in 2020 and of what's left of it and beyond, in 2021 to come, God is calling us to worship. He's calling us away from ourselves, away from a focus on our circumstances, and he's calling us to him in hope, a confident expectation in the one who has proven himself to always be a God merciful, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Let me pray for us this morning. Father, our our days and years like this, fiery trials, like Peter would say, that we endure in a fallen and broken world, it, it can sap us of a confident expectation that we are to be animated by, that we are to, to live in. It can, it can rob us of the expectation, and we can find ourselves feeling like Asaph in despair and questioning and wondering. Lord, I ask this morning that you, by your Holy Spirit, would would do the very thing that you promised to do. You would make us to be a people that would abound in hope. That we would be a people that would wake up and intentional to remember and ponder and meditate on who you've revealed yourself to be, who you've promised to be, and the confident expectation that is ours because of who you are. We want to be a people abounding in hope, not tethered to circumstance whose emotions aren't aren't tied to a a house of cards that can fall at any time, but whose hearts, whose lives are rooted in who you've revealed yourself to be. Lord, we ask this morning that you would do that work in our hearts by your spirit. In Jesus' good name, amen. You've been listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Robert Green on Sunday, November 29, 2020 at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church and to hear other sermons like this, visit us online at redemptionhill.com.